What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Brent Pritt with the Science Falling Podcast, episode number seven. Today, I have a really cool guest on. Um, we're going to be doing something that you may not think of as in the balance realm. We're going to be talking about swimming. So I got Ryan Chaney, uh, doctor of physical therapy, also owner and all-around awesome, knowledgeable guy doing Invictus Swim. That's his new project slash business. Not even a project. It's a business. He's making money off this thing right now. He's, he's helping people out and changing lives. Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I was born and raised in Colorado Springs, and that's currently where I'm working and residing. Went to UNE just like you. And primarily right now I'm working in a, a private outpatient clinic, uh, very manual based and see a very diverse population. You know, anything from like a 92 year old who's just trying to stay functional and work on balance and gait. Um, to some Olympic hopefuls and special forces guys and, and everything in between. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, my kind of new project on the side is Invictus Swim. And it's a kind of hybrid type program where I'm providing strength and conditioning and mobility um, and swim analysis for swimmers, primarily online and uh, through online coaching and stuff like that. Um, but for people in town too, um, I've been doing some lessons and, and things like that. Cool. Yeah. So just as a disclaimer for the audience, I can't swim. I was told, telling Ryan about this. I was wondering if I was going to say it on the podcast, but I can't swim at all. So swimming in general always has fascinated me, especially with, uh, as we record this, the Olympics are going on. So it is even more fascinating to me that uh, it might have actually a balanced component to it. Now I know Ryan and me talked about this before and we like, you know, it's just something new. We're both kind of exploring a little bit in this podcast, but I wanted to pick his brain and um, learn a little bit about his just knowledge base and see what we can take away for the science falling audience and also introduce you guys to what he's doing because it's pretty awesome. So uh, what drove you to do Invictus Swim? Kind of what started this project for you in your brain and what, where did you find that there was a need for what you're doing? Yeah. So we'll have to backpedal here in my life story. <laughs> so I was, I was a competitive swimmer for about 14 years, including two years in college. And in my last two seasons, I was dealing with a, a nagging shoulder injury and it, it got to the point where I couldn't swim anymore. Literally in practice, I was just kicking for hours on end and I was pretty miserable wasn't, wasn't enjoying the sport anymore that I grew up and loved. And that kind of led me down the path of um, getting into weightlifting and CrossFit and found this new avenue for fitness and, and trying to stay healthy, um, dealt with some other injuries along the way and, and uh, got introduced to the likes of like Kelly Starrett. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, this physical therapy thing looks pretty cool. And it, it looks like you can help people with their injuries, like my, my shoulder. And so went through college, um, got into the PT program at UNE. And again, it, it's always been a, a mission of mine, especially as a, a former swim coach too. Mm -hmm. I athletes that despite my efforts with uh, technique and form, uh, managing their volume and all these sorts of things, injuries would still crop up and I had no idea how to, how to help them. And it brought me back to that moment where, um, again, my own shoulder injury and just how frustrating and uh, demoralizing that can be. So 
you know, I, I got through PT school, um, started working, found a, my first job in an outpatient clinic. And I, I still do see quite a few um, old swimmers of mine and a couple of like triathletes and stuff, recreational swimmers and CrossFitters. So I've been able to um, dip my toes into that, helping that population. But I just felt like I needed to do more and try to have a greater reach and impact on the, uh, the sport of swimming. I, I really want to give back to it even as I started de uh, diving deeper into the research around uh, shoulder injuries and stuff like that, the statistics were pretty staggering. Um, anywhere between 40 to 90% of swimmers experience shoulder pain at some point. Seriously, that much? Yeah. That's insane. I mean, I get it, but that still sounds insane. I'm expecting like 25, 30%. That's why. No, it, it's all over the place. And the, um, systematic reviews, meta-analyses, um, kind of cite that like the numbers, um, vary wildly. And part of that is it, it's hard to kind of quantify shoulder pain. Is it soreness? Is it like an actual structural issue, like a slap tear or rotator cuff tendinopathy? What are their symptoms? Is it coming from the neck? All, all those sorts of things. Um, and there's probably some underreporting for shoulder pain and um, issues because the the current swim culture and back when I was a swimmer too, you you didn't really talk about it. You they told you to suck it up um, or like go see a, a a doc or a PT or chiro massage therapist. Go go take care of it outside of the water. Yeah. And so just with that experience, learning all these things, I was like, oh man, I I feel like there's this hole in in how we're approaching swimming and i i feel like i want to try to to help swimmers who were once in in my shoes dealing with an injury not sure what to do they love the sport but are frustrated because they they can't swim as well as they want to because of their their injuries awesome no i think it's like i mean it's a niche and you i mean i don't know how many I mean, do you know how many PTs are actually swim coaches and kind of in that realm? I know it's kind of one of those things that a lot of times it's either someone who's in the sport, but doesn't have really the medical side of the knowledge or someone has the medical side of knowledge, but they have know nothing about the sport that they're, you know, the athlete they're treating, whatever it might be in your area. Is there a lot of PTs who are also in this swim world that you know of? Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, there, there are certainly some resources online that I have found, um, from, PTs that kind of have a swimming background or were swim coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, but you, you kind of summed it up perfectly there. It, it's either you're a coach, you've been in the trenches. A lot of what you learn is what you learn from other more experienced coaches who produced Olympians or national level swimmers, whatever, or you're on the opposite end. You're a PT swimmer shows up to your clinic and is like, my shoulder hurts. My back hurts when I am, you know, pulling through and initiating the, the first pull. And you're like, what the heck is that? Here's a rotator cuff, TheraBand exercise. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. It, it's an interesting spot that I've been that I've gone through kind of the, I guess, the life cycle. So I, I've been the competitive swimmer, mm -hmm. a swim coach and a strength and conditioning coach, then got into physical therapy. And now I'm kind of trying to mash all of that knowledge and taking stuff from research and everything and, and trying to put 
put it all together here. I love it. And not only that, you know what it what it's like to be an injured swimmer and having the, the culture force you to keep on swimming and push past your limits a little bit and maybe kind of hide some of that. Uh, that's awesome, man. I, I really love this Invicta Swim project you got going on and uh, it's going to be huge. So, you know, any swimmers <laughs> on here, any swimmers on here, listen to this podcast, hit Ryan up, he'll, he'll do you well. All right. So this is the, the big question of today and we're going to talk about a few facets of it, but is balance important in swimming? Now I was doing some research. Like I said, I'm not a swimmer. I don't know anything. I mean, I don't even know what water looks like. I don't go near it enough. So, <laughs> um, but I know I read some articles and maybe you have to kind of tell me the lingo here, but balance is important in swimming, but it's not the way we think of balance on like dry land, right? Like there's, there's a balance to these, the body and the swim stroke and kind of like being level in the water. Is that, is that correct? In my infant knowledge of this sport? <laughs> yeah, no, that. That's uh, a perfect way to kind of describe it. Um, you know, we're, we're not standing on like foam blocks or BOSUs or, you know, the majority of our sport is spent in this horizontal position in relation to a, a water and bottom of the pool. Most of the gravity has been eliminated. And so the, the biggest factors we're kind of contending with what we would call like our buoy, which is our, our balance point. And it's this uh, balancing act of trying to find the optimal position in the water by shifting our weight, um, contracting certain muscles, and trying to keep the most hydrodynamic position possible at the top of the water while we're swimming. Starts and turns are a little bit different. So again, majority of time is spent um, in this very unique position compared to, to other sports, I would say. Cool, all right, I mean, I, I like that. And you're doing a lot of unilateral work, right? And why? I mean, would you consider it unilateral because you're using the limbs in different positions as you go? Or is it more of a, I mean, obviously you're, you're kicking with both feet, right? But yeah, I guess I'm getting to the point of, you know, do you train unilateral work a lot in terms because, you know, balance is often done in unilateral positions. And obviously if you're in the water in that horizontal position, that's, you're working on a form of balance using the water's kind of physics to get you to that point. How does bilateral versus unilateral exercise kind of feed into that? Yeah. So great question. So swimming is, um, it, it's interesting because you, there's four strokes. So the first two are what we would call long axis strokes. So that would be your traditional front crawl or freestyle and the stroke. And so it's very much in the transverse plane of movement um, the middle of the axis goes through your head and then down the center of the body. And yes, it, it's this interesting combination of unilateral upper body motion to propel you. So you're anchoring with one arm in, the other arm will then take the place as you pull through and you're just alternating, rotating and snapping through the hips as well. And the kick itself, both legs are going but in the case of freestyle backstroke, you're doing a flutter kick. So legs are alternating rapidly. And the primary purpose of the, the kick is number one, it creates some uplift. So it helps keep the hips up. So again, that you're keeping that nice horizontal position in the water. Um, and it, it provides a little bit of propulsion. Swimming is, and especially in like the freestyle is primarily upper body driven. Mm -hmm. The 80 to 90% of the propulsion comes from the, the upper body. So the kick's just kind of an afterthought. 
But I will say that, especially at the elite levels of swimming, that the kick almost serves as a way to um, improve your arm's ability and hand's ability to reach and catch onto that water and pull on it there. Mm-hmm. Going back to your question of unilateral training, yeah, freestyle backstroke, absolutely. You could consider that kind of unilateral. The butterfly and breaststroke, maybe not so much. Um, they would be what we would call short axis strokes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, rotating about the body, it's more of this up and down type motion. And we're using both arms and legs simultaneously. So, for the butterfly, both arms come up and forward, and then they're going to pull down and through, and you're doing a dolphin kick, which is both legs kicking together simultaneously. Uh, breaststroke, you're going through, again, a similar kind of sweeping type motion, shooting forward, and then the legs um, almost mimic, like if you've seen a, a frog kick, yeah. it's whipping back and behind there. So. Um, you could definitely consider that more of a, a bilateral type of training and work versus the freestyle backstroke. Okay. Interesting. All right. All right. So I guess that takes me to, because when we're talking about balance in the, in the realm of science of falling, I've talked a lot about stuff uh, on dry land. And you, so in swimming, you have to call that dry land training. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I learned this from you. Like I said earlier, that when we were talking together and it's, I never even knew that was a thing. That's awesome. So how does dry land training differ from, I'm assuming you don't call it wetland training, water training. Yeah. How do those two training scenarios differ? Because clearly you're a swimmer. You're going to be in the pool a lot. You're working on the stroke. You're trying to make everything streamlined and efficient. But I know you, from what I've seen on Instagram, you're, you're talking a lot about the dry land training. Like it's an important component of the athlete's ability. So you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so dry land training, if we're speaking more of a like traditional sense um, what you might expect in like your local swim club and stuff like that, it, it's primarily body weight exercises, typically um, maybe a medicine ball if you're lucky. And it, it's some odd combination of, you know, pull-ups, push-ups, um, sit-ups, brush and twists, uh, maybe some jumping, jumping jacks, burpees. And it, from there, you can kind of take, um, different lens or perspective. Some coaches see it as a, certainly as a tool to try to enhance their swimmers performance outside of the water. But I would also say that coaches do it also as a, a way to get some cross training in and break some of the, the monotony around constantly swimming. Yes. Um, I'll be honest with you, like even back in my college days, you know, you're in the water six, six days a week, including like swimming on Sundays sometimes. And, um, you had two days twice a week. And then you had the dry land in that case was more of a, uh, sport specific strength training type program. And that was honestly my, my favorite part. Unfortunately, dry land definitely takes the, the, the back seat in most coaches' minds. Uh, one, they don't have necessarily the background or knowledge or skilled or even space sometimes to implement an effective uh, dryland program for their swimmers. Because again, in, a lot of times you need a, a weight room and if the only thing you have available is a five lane or six lane pool and pool deck, it's like, 
All right. Well, body weight it is, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time on my uh, social media platform trying to preach the importance of a, a well-rounded um, program. And the reason being, again, swimmers are typically a, a very specialist type sport. So from the time you, you start, there's a lot of pressure and expectation. If like, hey, you want to be really good at swimming, you need to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. That means you, you can't go and play soccer in the fall and you shouldn't be, you know, going on ski trips and, and stuff like that. Like you live and breathe and die in the pool there. Interestingly, is not a strong correlation between the, the typical concerns that we see with early specialization in adolescence in swimmers. Really? That was, a, that was the first thing that came to my brain when you're talking about how specialized a sport is. I was going to ask you about that because there's tons of tons of research saying that kids shouldn't specialize. But is that because it's a non-weight bearing sport? So there's not as much of those forces going through your body. You know, if you're playing football, you get tackled and, mm-hmm. you know, those movement patterns are um, pretty specific. But isn't I mean, swimming is pretty specific, too. That's why I'm terrible at it. I, I, <laughs> I do a lot of other things and I can't swim. So obviously it's, it's a very specific motion. Yeah, it was really interesting. There were actually quite a few psychology papers that were examining um, a lot of the, especially cognitive and uh, mood type things related to injuries and burnout and swimming. Because I was, I was looking for answers too. I'm like, is there a strong correlation between like shoulder injuries and in swimming and dropout and depression or anxiety, et cetera? And interestingly enough, uh, again, there's always a need for more uh, mm-hmm. strong research. Yep. Based on what they saw, the, the strongest indicators for whether or not a swimmer was going to be a lifetime participant was feelings of autonomy. So feeling like they were in control that of their swim destiny, that they were progressing. The second important factor was competency. So feeling like you're, you're good at your sport, obviously important. And then the third thing was, um, kind of support factors. So like their coaches, their teammates, um, and those kind of support systems in place for them. And although they didn't find a a strong correlation between that and like volume and injury, I was able to kind of draw my own conclusions that, a lot of these support systems are disrupted when you're injured. Um, and that's, that goes for any sport. Yeah. Your, your shoulder starts hurting. You're like, Oh man, like what, what is going on? Number one, you know, we hurt ourselves. First thing goes through our head is like, Oh my gosh, am I going to need surgery? It, yes. my arm off. So you tell your coach or your, your parents and you're like, Hey, my shoulder kind of hurts and they might dismiss you. Or if you're lucky, you're like, Hey, uh, you know, look at my stroke and, and try to help it. So you've had this disruption, maybe you're, you're trying to talk to your support group and because swimming, especially the, the swim culture is very much suck it up, no pain, no gain. And your, you know, fellow teammates too, who are your friends, a lot of times, if they have that same mentality, if you're the quote unquote outsider now, because of your injury, that can be very isolating and um, again, disrupts what what's going on maybe in a in cognitive level. And then again, that's going to make you feel like, Hey, you know, my coach has produced excellent athletes. 
they're all doing well. So there must be something wrong with me. So you suddenly lose this feeling of competency. You lose this sense of autonomy that you're in control because now suddenly coach is telling you, go grab a kickboard or go sit on the bleachers with an ice pack. You are no longer dictating or working towards your, your goals anymore. Yeah, that's when you lose your identity, right? I mean, if you lose your friends, technically, I mean, whether or not, I mean, you're not losing them, but they're not treating you the same way. You're losing the ability to swim, which like you're saying, you're doing it so much. I mean, this is half your week, essentially, right? So you're losing yeah. your identity and then you just lose all this connection. So, I mean, it makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, so there, there was a huge... Um, psychological component to the the burnout rates and um, surrounding that. And again, really interesting that, you know, if you could maintain these things that most people will deal with the, the high volume and intensity and uh, monotony that goes into the sport. But that's not to say just because that's the way things are going right now and what's common doesn't mean it's the, what I would argue, best practice. Mm-hmm. Again, the example I like to use is like smoking was pretty popular and common, like in the, you know, fifties with the onslaught of information, we now know smoking is terrible for you. And, you know, most people don't smoke. You can make the same argument for, um, training practices, um, especially in like sports or look at like uh, football and TBIs that you said, Oh yeah, you just got your, your bell wrong. It's like, no, 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 this is a major, like people are dying at a, young age not to again say that shoulder injury is is as serious as that but the going back to what you said about like identity it's like i was a swimmer i am a swimmer when that's taken away from you you're left with this vacuum of um i don't know existential crisis and it's easy to fall into anxiety and depression uh, depression and being angry sad and confused and it's like just I love the sport bitter because of, of things like that. I'm sure a lot of swimmers do. I mean, I'm yeah. sure they get pushed out and then they, they still have a love for it, but they feel like it's not for them anymore and they have to find something else. And there's going to be that period where, yeah, they have the existential crisis. Like, what do I do now? That's all I've ever done, especially when you're doing it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, it took me probably close to uh, 10 years for me to have a, I guess a, a better relationship with the water again. Um, and again, I swim now recreationally and have much more enjoyment out of it. My shoulders don't hurt anymore, which is also a plus, but going back the, my argument is we can do things better and we have all this new information. It, and again, swimming has been interesting because the, the research studies on like implementing strength and conditioning is not great. Um, it's very generic. Um, and it's like, of course you didn't see any results. Like you probably didn't do enough to create some kind of stimulus that's going to lead to adaptation and just silly things like that. But my argument is a well-rounded strength conditioning mobility program as an adjunct to a thoughtful swim program is only going to be good for, for your swimmers. So Again, addressing some of the common issues that you run into, some of the kind of specific adaptations that occur just kind of naturally from the sport itself, similar to like what we see in rowers or, you know, soccer players and their ACLs hypertrophying and and that sort of thing. 
So we can do our best to maintain and keep the swimmer strong and robust, but then also work on things related to performance. Cause I know at the forefront, everybody was like, I want to be faster. Yes. They, they care about the um, boring um, maintenance work to, to keep them healthy. Right. We want the, the sexy, cool stuff. So from a performance aspect too, I know a lot of people are drawn to like, Oh, that's a, a cool rowing variation or, you know, that's a cool way to implement power training and showing people that like, Hey, if you're like a 50 freestyler, a, a sprinter, 30% of your swim is spent jumping off that block. So if you can do it faster, if you can go further with your jump and get more speed and power compared to everybody else, that can be the the difference between a, a gold and a silver medal or getting that qualifying time or whatever the, the goal might be. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the approach I'm taking. And just, again, trying to implement some cross-training, some different ideas and stimuli for these swimmers, because um, again, using myself as an N of one, honestly, I was kind of a motor moron outside of the water, as as we'd call in the PT. I can't believe I can't believe that. So I just thought for everybody <laughs> listening, Ryan and I would be in the gym at the same time together. And this guy's an animal. You know, if you think about a swimmer, you think maybe someone's lean and skinny. He's lean and skinny, but he's got muscle on top of all that leanness. So it's it's it, him as a motor moron just blows my mind. I can't believe it. Well, I I promise you. you you didn't see where I, I started with like weightlifting uh, when I did get into it. Like you can imagine like the, the scared back or scared cat yeah. dead where I'm like super rounded and I had no idea how to like brace my core and, and things like that. And I've, I've come a long way from, from that point there, I would say, yeah. but it, it's just been interesting to me that like you, you throw me in the water and I feel very much at home. Um, my stroke looks you know, pretty good. Mm. And you bring me outside of the water. You ask me to like run or jump or pick up a barbell. And suddenly I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing with my body. And I, I guess it's not an end of one, but I, I did see that a lot in my swimmers, especially the ones that were specialists and haven't done other sports or have never touched a barbell and, and things like that. So trying to teach these kids how to organize themselves in relation to gravity and stuff like that. It was just such a, a big challenge, but I would make the argument that improved motor control, regardless of swimming or uh, dry land has enormous potential for just improving overall in balance and also just athletic performance in the water. So yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, taking back to the balance kind of stuff. So when you take a swimmer out and let's say they are a motor moron for a lack of a better term. And for those who don't know what motor moron means, it's basically <laughs> someone, I don't know if it's, is it a physical therapy term? Like it's like an under, like under wraps physical therapy term. Cause I don't think <laughs> anybody else ever say it. Like it's, it's a mean thing to say, but it basically means that a person has a lack of control in their movements. You know, they, they walk a little wonky. Sometimes they lift a little wonky. Uh, most things they do are a little wonky. So, and when you take a swimmer who kind of has that, would you, what's your philosophy? And I know your philosophy, we've talked about this before. Your philosophy is a little bit different than mine in terms of like working on the balance and everything like that. And it's totally fine because mm-hmm. the way you you do it is it works just as well. What is the kind of way you would take this person and kind of teach them motor control and core strength and kind of teaching their body, uh, maybe not to balance on one leg, but to have the balance to be able to align themselves to gravity better uh, and be more stable on dry land. What, what is your ideas on that? Yeah. 
So again, everything I've, I've learned up until this point and just, again, even with my own experience, I definitely put the, the heart or the heart, the heart before the horse mm-hmm. in that, you know, I like most guys, right. We go, we gravitate towards like, all right, I'm going to do bench press and curls and pull-ups and maybe some squats or deadlifts. If I'm feeling really motivated, bunch of core, um, and, and realizing that I didn't have great internal control and that led to poor external load control. And so at this point, I realized that starting with, if I were to take a swimmer who has motor control issues, difficulty with organizing their body uh, or movement planning, I, I guess, is first we would just work on super basic boring stuff. So again, my education through functional range conditioning heavily influenced me. Um, dynamic systems theory heavily influenced me. And the, the biggest thing that I would start with most, even my um, patients in the clinic is just, can you move your own body well in space? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then we're going to get really good at that first and find ways to shape exercises um, with constraints to encourage the behaviors I think would benefit you so that if you do move an external load, you, you have more movement options. You've been exposed to different strategies and uh, solutions to our movement issue. So it's going to look like a bunch of slow, methodical um, joint circles, being mindful with that. It's going to look like a lot of isometrics. Um, I'm a big fan of isometrics because it just allows us to take a snapshot of a position. I feel like, okay, we need to get a lot better at X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a lot of time there. Let your brain, let your nervous system figure out what I want you to do here and how to do it successfully. Everybody's done a plank and it's a very challenging stimulus, especially implemented in the correct way. Yeah, definitely. I've been uh, introducing, I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of magic RKC planks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I use those a lot with my patients. Most of them are more on the athletic side, but I mean, I'm dealing with like 56 year olds who are, you know, like to walk around and it's, it's always fun to see, Cause anybody can do a plank, but not anybody can do a plank. Right. And then the minute I start doing an RKC plank, I'm like, all right, we got steps to go through. We're going to do it together a few times, see how your brain even knows how to do this. So it's very interesting that what we take for granted, most PTs or athletes, I guess. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that motor plan. and don't know how to use that isometric hold. Don't know how to use the joint in, um, in a joint circle. Like I've been using, and I actually, you're the one who introduced me to functional range conditioning. So I appreciate that. So I was doing, um, I haven't done the training yet, but Hey, I've watched some YouTube videos. So I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I've done a lot of the, the, uh, glenohumeral joint circles and everything. My, especially swimming athletes. I don't know if you've been using those, but, uh, um, oh, yeah. I've, I've gotten a lot of people back to swimming just by doing those and teach them what the limits of their shoulder joint are and, you know, what feels good, what feels bad, how to get around the pain through that joint circle. And it's been quite exciting to see how that how well that works for swimmers um, and my basic non knowledgeable self about swimming. But so it's, yeah, it's super interesting. So when you're, when you're talking about dry land training, let's say we have an athlete, not a motor moron, but they're, they're not, you know, Michael Phelps either. Um, mm. 
let's be honest. I know you're going to the Olympics this year. You just forgot your flight so far, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, uh, what, what kind of, tra- what's the dry land training look like? Like, well, how would you program it? I know obviously other people would do body weight stuff and everything, but if you kind of your ideal gym setup, you had all the equipment you could use, what would, what would this situation look like for these athletes? And, um, as a bonus question at the end, would you do any balance training with them? And if, if not, why, if so, why would you do it? Yeah. So to be honest, um, again, with or without extensive equipment, I, I feel like I could still achieve a lot, um, which again, especially through like my, my business models, like I want you to be able to do this anywhere and not be limited because you don't have access to a $10,000 machine or whatever. I appreciate um, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a lot of planning. That's probably the, the biggest thing. If you're mid season and trying to come up with a, a program, you're, you're already kind of missing the mark. You should have started in the preseason mm-hmm. with again, kind of. So what I would start with there is just, I hate the term because it, it gets all kinds of confused, but general physical preparedness preparation. So in the off season, let the kids have fun, you know, enjoy what's left of their, their summer break or whatever, because most year round swimmers, they get maybe a three, four week period, I guess early September where they're off for the, the year. So let the kids have fun, enjoy the last bit of their vacation. And then from there, as we get into the season, again, it's going to be starting with a lot of those cars, those controlled articular rotations, joint circles. Um, it's going to be a lot of time spent on just learning how to do the movement and figure out movement plans. I've actually started diving into um, some work on how to implement more motor control type training into strength and conditioning, especially for um, novice or even intermediate lifters. I'm even doing it now because I realize I have some holes in my movement awesome. competency. Um, but it can be as simple as a one by 20 type program. So, you know, we're looking at 12 to 16 exercises that will work just about every joint um, in the body or might have different goals. So, like, we're going to work on the squat pattern or we're going to work on Uh, anti-rotation or rotation itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're just doing one set of 20 rating of perceived exertion at maybe a five. So you're still going to get a pretty big stimulus 20 reps in, right? 15 in, you're going to be like, oh man, okay, this is only like 20 pounds, but my arm is on fire. It's getting hard. You're going to finish it out. Uh, But the overall volume and, um, Total workload is low enough to where you shouldn't be trashed going into the next three days. You're not going to be so sore that yeah, you can't move. Because ultimately the goal is to, to be able to swim well during training. Yeah. So, I have a question on that. So when you're doing yeah. that, you're calling that the one by 20. So one set, 20 reps, and you're taking, you say 12 to 16 exercises? Yeah. About and you're working on specific things for each of these exercises, correct? You said mm-hmm. so. It's, you're doing one by twenty, and I think most people, when they think about dry land training or just weightlifting and stuff, they're trying to they're working on the muscles. But it sounds like in my in my head, you said motor control. You're working on the brain more than anything. How do you do this specific movement? Train the the arm or the shoulder to work with the brain to create this specific muscle pattern, right? Or movement pattern, excuse mm-hmm. me. 
So that's interesting. I, I mean, I feel like that's something that no one talks about very much. It's just one of those things, you know, if you're going to go in here and destroy those muscles, come back tomorrow and hopefully you're not dead so you can do another round of it. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your, you're factoring this brain side to it. So I just wanted to make that aside to kind of make that clear. Cause that's really interesting to me. Uh, it's not done much. I don't think many normal coaches think about that way. So I know your physical therapy brain is firing all cylinders when you're telling your athletes, do one by 20, don't worry about it. It shouldn't hurt. Like <laughs> it's, it's your brain. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it is interesting. Um, again, from a, a strength and conditioning perspective, the, the physiology side of things, the first three to four weeks into a, a typical cycle are more neuromuscular adaptations anyways. So it's an improved firing rates, improved um, recruitment of those motor units. And again, just overall, it, it's much more neurological than, you know, muscles growing and, and those sorts of things. It's not until the later portions of uh, a strength and conditioning cycle where you get some of those muscular adaptations especially if you're programming with the intent of like, I want to make my muscle bigger or I want to make it more or stronger, faster, or have greater endurance, those, those sorts of variables there. And again, this is still very much new to me. So I might be butchering some of it as I'm trying to figure out how to implement it better. But again, I was actually exposed through it through, uh, I think it's called the strength coach network. Okay. Australian rugby coach, uh, world-class who runs that. And he started popping up and then I started digging into Dr. Uh, I think he's Russian. Yes. Okay. And his philosophy and research with regards to one by 20 for novice and intermediate, um, athletes, but going from that perspective there, let's move well, um, improve the, the movement patterns and strategies there big emphasis on, again, uh, maybe some more preventative stuff. So rotator cuff, lat, internal rotators, pec, all those sorts of things would be kind of early season type preparation. And then going into mid season, again, getting a little bit more specific. And that's where we maybe divide our uh, swimmers based on what their preferred swims are. So if you're a distance swimmer, Power training is probably not going to be at the top of your list. Muscular endurance and just, again, keeping you healthy are probably going to be my priorities. So it's going to be, again, more preventative type work, maybe a little bit higher repetitions and in that realm there. Whereas my middle distance, you're probably, again, going to be more hypertrophy range, probably a good amount of power work as well. And it's going to be a lot of lactate threshold anaerobic type stuff there. And then for the sprinters, it's going to be a lactic and uh, anaerobic threshold type stuff. A lot of explosive training, a lot of power and, and that sort of thing there. Mm -hmm. And then into the, the end of the season, into championships and stuff like that. That's where we would go into highly specific exercises, programming, peaking, and, and trying to, you know, finish out with a bang there. So that's, that's kind of how I would structure the program. And again, a lot of these things can be accomplished with just body weight type movements. Um, and that's not to say like later on, we introduce a lot of again, more sport specific stuff like um, cable chops or med ball throws, box jumps, depth drops, flat pull down, weighted pull-ups, those sorts of things would be, again, extremely important 
where again, 90% of the propulsion for like freestyle is through the arms. Mm-hmm. Breaststroke's a different story. That's about 80% leg. So wow. my breaststrokers are probably going to be doing more squats or um, I might even look at unilateral, like Bulgarian split squats, something like that. And to answer your bonus question, balance training, um, I certainly think could have a, a place and actually would be kind of more in line with the, the wetland. That's a term now. Officially. <laughs> wetland training. So uh, a huge component of the swim is the start and having the balance and knowing where you need to shift your weight and sit on the block is a huge component. Um, because again, if you slip, that back foot slips, you've just lost so much power into the fastest part of your race. And that could lose you the race, right? I mean, that could be absolutely. Absolutely. And so a drill I like to use with my swimmers is we'll actually just practice on rocking forward as far as we can before we fall into the water. We do some other kind of or relay starts, for example, we would do a kind of step progression to make sure that you know, they can keep their balance and they're comfortable with running off that block and diving into the water when their teammates coming in and timing that correctly. So they don't crash into each other. Always a good thing, right? Yes. <laughs> we don't need any concussions. So that's an interesting uh, part where balance is very important for the swimmer. And as far as like balance as a part of the strength program, I think it would serve as not only a, a great way to gamify some of the maybe training adaptations I'm trying to create, maybe having a really bad day where our swimmers are feeling really beat up. Maybe they need a a different stimulus that's still going to challenge their body. Then I think balance training might be a good and fun way to be as simple as like standing on one leg and passing a tennis ball around Mm -hmm. or reactionary type drills. So a drill I like to do is with like a PVC pipe or a wooden dowel with a partner like, okay, you're going to stand in front of each other. Your partner is going to drop the dowel in a random direction. And your job is to step and catch it at the very last moment or as fast as possible. You can always change the rules, um, but work on some of that hand-eye coordination, weight shifting, that sort of thing there. I like it. All right. I like, you know what? You could have just said balance has nothing to do with swimming. And I would have been happy because I <laughs> almost got a spit take right there. I love it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because like it's one of those things, like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's not something that I've ever even thought about. And I'm sure it's not much of, you know, anybody who's into the balance world is like, oh, swimming. Yeah, swimmers need that. No, because you're in the water, right? I mean, there's a balance of being horizontal, and that's a different thing entirely. And I think that um, if we widen the scope of our natural thing, you know, what balance is, that's a really important part. But, you know, on dry land, uh, I never even thought about the 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 starting, but what do you call the, is that starts? Yeah. Starts. Yeah. So I want to even think about the starts and kind of how you're rocking it off the, um, so you look at my, I was going to say diving board. Is that what you actually like? Oh, just a starting block. There you go. See my lingo. It's just not here, but, um, yeah, so I find this interesting. So, you know, I, I would have been cool if you said, uh, no, but you, you just humored me a little bit and I appreciate that, but it, it makes sense that it would come into play. And obviously if you're swimming all the time and you get out of the water and now you're, you're doing heavy weightlifting, there's going to be those days where you're just, just done. Like you have nothing left. So I, I see how balance could be a, or reactionary training, such with the Dow 
could be a fun way to still get this athlete to work on things, work on motor control, but give their body a little bit of a rest because it's not as intense. So that's, that's super interesting for me. Now, tell me about like core training because core is really important in balance as well. Cause if you're, if your core is loose, then you're like one of those Gumby little air things in front of the car dealership. If your core is tight, you can use your limbs a lot more effectively. So what's the core training like in swimmers? Yeah. Core training is a, a huge part. People, I mean, regardless, always love doing endless sit-ups, uh, flutter kicks, the leg push downs, yep. twists, all of those make up your pretty standard fare for most swim teams. And it, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a, um, at least a moderate correlation based on what I've seen in the research with core training, core stabilization and swim times and swimming faster. And so, yeah, it, it's definitely an important part and maybe a little bit overhyped because I think people forget too, that when you're resistance training or doing specific things, you're going to be working on creating that intra-abdominal pressure, um, bracing the, the core, and then, you know, doing whatever the, the exercise is. And it, it's interesting too. So when we're, when we're swimming, um, there is kind of going back to the, like the whole balance thing, the lungs are actually a huge part of finding that balance. Mm-hmm. So inflating the lungs and then finding usually along the armpit for like, if you're swimming freestyle, and pushing down into that armpit raises the hips and understanding that relationship there is a interesting component. Um, where I was going with this, just, yeah, sorry. Stream of consciousness there. I love it. I love it. So, so essentially the, the core has a part, but also the, the lungs and having, you know, the proper amount of air and the proper technique use it in terms of how your, their stroke goes with the breathing and everything as it gets you to that balance point. In the yeah. Water. yeah. And, and there is a skill in itself on actually with, especially some of the higher level swimmers on timing your breath, because you don't want to be, you know, fully exhaled with your face in the water. Cause again, you're going to start just, especially if you're more muscle bound too, start sinking a little bit. So if you can keep your lungs full as you're swimming right before you uh, take a stroke, you're going to breathe out aggressively, take that quick breath immediately back in the, in the water there. And on the, on the topic of core stability, um, really interesting just in how I approach uh, core stabilization and especially in relation to like balance or whatever task we're, we're doing, um, I see it as more, again, task dependent. Again, if I am working with my, my athletes, you know, I might not cue them like, I'm okay with you staying a little bit more lax. Like we're working at 20 or 30%. I don't want you to be like bracing a 200% trying super hard, turning red in the face. I want you to stay relaxed as you're, you're doing this, whether it's a, a balance type movement or a power movement or, or whatever. I know we've talked in the past. So in terms of like, like even like when you said it today, core training, I mean, you'd rather have a heavy squat and just do whatever your stomach naturally does rather than forcing it in there. Because for most movements, I think I've, I've read that you only need that 20, 30% to be stable, right? You don't need the hundred percent to, to really lock down. So when people are doing all these ab exercises, trying to get their core nice and strong, and it's, you know, they're only really getting a third of the core because you got the low back and you got the hips and everything. You've talked about the core of the body. 
Um, mm. Not nearly as effective as just doing a heavy loaded movement and just bracing your core enough to get through the movement. And in swimming, I imagine, you know, you don't got 300 pounds on your back, so you don't need to <laughs> that much. Yeah. You got any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there pretty good. It, yeah, it's just kind of task dependent. And as the external load increases, you're probably going to be bracing harder. And, and kind of like you said there, we're, you know, only getting up into like 20, 30% of uh, recruitment. Um, but that additional bracing might, you could even see it through a lens of you're just increasing central nervous system recruitment, trying to get as many motor units firing as possible, getting maybe a little bit of like an overflow effect. So because I'm bracing and contracting all the muscles in my obliques and um, abdominals, that's going to spill over into like hip flexor or into the quad. And that will hopefully lead to me being able to not, uh, you know, break in half when I have a, a load on my back or something like that. I, I hate breaking in half. It's, a, it's not a fun time. So I understand. Not, not recommended. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I've taken up a lot of time. So I want to ask you one more question. We kind of already talked about this. And I, I sent this question to you before I even read an article mm-hmm. about balance and swimmers. Uh, but you know, in your opinion, and after I talked to you about, about the recent uh, article I read about from the couch, I think in like 2016 or something like that, you know, can just recreational swimmers, not even like elite swimmers, but someone who's in the pool, maybe three, four times a week, just enjoys it um, for, you know, it's their version of running. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what kind of effects do you personally, and have you seen that has on uh, balance? Have you seen that personally, or is it something uh, that just hasn't really come up in your practice? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And I, I don't have a 100% uh, accurate answer, I guess, but I can certainly speculate. Go for it. That's what I was kind of expecting. I, I didn't think you'd have this. I don't think any swim coach in the world has this answer. So, you know, hey, yeah. you're the first one to ever try to answer this. So have fun. Um, so it was interesting after, um, you know, I saw your post, I looked at the article and they always have like other related articles and one looked at recreational um, swimmers, golfers, and then kind of your standard sedentary, just do chores at home type deal in older adults. What they found is that golfers and swimmers had greater uh, or better balance, um, had less risk of falling. And again, they're, they're just recreational swimmers. So just like a couple times a week. And they, they didn't really have like a, a good answer either. But uh, if I had to speculate, kind of like you you mentioned in your post, swimming is a very sensory heavy sport. You constantly are in contact with that water. So you're getting that stimulation through proprioceptors. Just an interesting thought too, is you're, you're barefoot for mm-hmm. the entire duration of the swim. So you're walking around in the bottom of the pool barefoot, you're walking on the deck barefoot. And especially in our older adults, as we know, and even some uh, you know middle-aged, some people live in their shoes and never expose their feet and the sensory uh, rich area um, there to the, the stimuli they need. And just even, I guess, reaching even further, you know, getting in and out of the pool in itself requires some upper body strength, some lower body strength, um, eccentric control going down, unless you're, you're going down the stairs or whatever. Uh, but there, there's a lot going on. You can make other arguments that it's a great dissociative type drill. So you're working on, again, movement patterns, um, dissociating head from trunk, 
maybe a little bit of vestibular type stimulation with, again, turning your head to breathe. And I would argue there is some visual stuff. Uh, I, I mean, you're, you're staring at the bottom of a pool, but you are doing some kind of like gaze tracking. You got to look for the wall. You're, you're moving in a lot of different planes as you flip turn and move and, and all those sorts of things there. So that would be my best guess. Um, I, I think you can make the argument too that just being a more active human and adult is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. But that, that's my take, at least on the, the swimming portion. I thought that was a fantastic take because I didn't even think about, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of what uh, you may have heard of the Foot Collective. Have you heard mm-hmm. of those? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of what they do. And, you know, I've on my own, I've written three articles on the foot and, you know, getting, getting back to kind of not necessarily barefoot everywhere, but getting the foot back to being a little more natural, feeling more and all that. So I didn't even think about the the factor of your, I was thinking about your barefoot in the water and the water's on your foot, like the, the very simplistic as it can be, but you are constantly walking barefoot around the pool, walking barefoot in the pool uh, on the bottom. And just the fact that our, you know, there are a lot of people that live in shoes. I've had patients that were told by their doctor or podiatrist 20 years ago to not ever go barefoot anymore. And they're still doing it. And they're asking why they have foot problems. I'm like, well, oh, well, why do you think you have foot I mean, it's like, it's so sad because they look at these people who have their doctors and I'm like, they did it with good intention and they may have not even said forever, but that's how you took it. And all of a sudden your foot, which should be as, uh, take as much sensory stimulation as your hands do basically. Right. Um, mm-hmm. hasn't had that in forever. You're walking around on, you know, pillows or cushions, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I didn't even think about that regard. I mean, you're walking around barefoot around the pool and it might be even dissociated in your brain of this isn't barefoot walking. This is me swimming, but I just have to do this for a second to get there. So I actually, I like that idea. That was awesome. Your speculation <laughs> blew my mind. I love it. It was so simple. It's right there, but I, you know, I didn't see it. You know what? I'm going to ask the final question here. And this is oh, yeah. last the final question, but this is going to be it. And I already know what the answer is going to be. Um, I think, but you, you're good at speculating. So you're <laughs> going, uh, does all training have any, any correlation in swimmers? I mean, is there a point to it? I mean, obviously if you fall into the water and you know how to swim, you're fine. But do you think there is any place in, in the actual sport of swimming, not for these swimmers daily lives? Cause I think that would be obvious. Yes. But like in the sport of swimming, learning how to fall does that have any correlation can you think speculate anything you want on that? yes um so i would argue break my heart right now just break it just say the no word yeah uh, again i like to think outside the box and and challenge the the status quo so i'm gonna say yes Ooh, oh my gosh <laughs> i think i'm in love with you uh, um so I, I think where you might have some applications, some carryover with some of the, the fall training, especially um, I know you do a lot of like rolling mm-hmm. type movements to, again, work on distributing um, forces over a bigger surface area, redirect it so that, again, you're you know not shattering bones and stuff, but maybe a little scraped. In the world of swimming, um, I think the carryover would be in like something like flip turns. And so having the movement coordination to understand how to, you know, organize and do something like a somersault in the water, that's actually a progression I use to teach swimmers how to do a flip turn. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And uh, back tucks as well. Sometimes if we're working on uh, a bucket turn, there's an old school IM transition, individual medley. So when you go from back to breaststroke, you actually touch and then you back tuck and then push off there. Interesting. Um, All right. Yeah. 
I would argue, yeah, I think you could incorporate a little bit uh, of some of those strategies, maybe into the water. Uh, might take some creativity and, and tinkering, of course, but yeah, I, I think you could implement it and make an argument for, yeah, let's, let's. Interesting. I shot my shot at the wrong hoop and you laid up right into the right. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Was, I was expecting a completely different answer. So that makes me happy. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm yeah. biased, but you know, it is okay. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, I, you know, I appreciate you coming on here and I, it honestly was an awesome conversation. Like you took this in some different ways that I wasn't expecting. We talked about it before and we were like, oh, we'll see how this goes. You know, I, I thought it would be interesting to see a sport that's not typically associated with balance training. And um, mm -hmm. uh, you got some good information, what, whether it be speculation or not, it's all coming from your personal knowledge base and what you've seen in the sport. So it all has some good weight to it. You know, I want people to know where to find you. So tell people where they can find you, where you, they can get in touch with you, um, whatever you want to tell them. I spend most of my days um, on Instagram under my, my personal Instagram and business account now. Um, Invictus Swim, so that's all lower lowercase Invictus underscore Swim, and again, I, I post a lot of information with regards to swimming, whether that's strength and conditioning, swimming technique. Uh, I just did a breakdown of uh, 400 IM that happened a, a couple of days ago, and and those sorts of things. There, um, I also have a, a, a um, free kind of mobility manual, self-assessment type deal. And um, my top three exercises that I give a lot of my athletes for trying to rever uh, reverse their shoulder pain. Um, so I recommend if anybody's more curious uh, about that, they can check that up. And those, those are probably the best places to, to look me up and hit me up there. Um, I, I don't do much else in Facebook yet. So I'm, I'm working on that maybe some other stuff will, will crop up too. So yeah. Cool. And, uh, your free manuals through a link on your Instagram, right? Correct. Yeah. In your bio there. I saw earlier. Cool. And you know, for everybody who is listening to this, if you're on, uh, my science of falling website and you're watching this, or if you're on YouTube, or even if you're in, hopefully I can get into the podcast area. I'm still new to all that format, but, um, all the information you said will be in there. It's actually, you're looking at the video right now underneath his uh headshot right now you're going to be seeing his instagram name and his real name with all of his credentials was it pt dpt cscs frc yeah yes. yeah <laughs> all that fun stuff so uh thanks for listening everybody and brian i appreciate you coming on that was an awesome conversation uh i appreciate you giving me this time and i appreciate what you're doing for swimmers out there it seems like coming from a different angle that not everybody's coming at and uh hopefully you just converted a bunch of people who listen to this to being better swimmers and coming at you Thanks, man. i for sure cannot still swim but you know that's just gonna be the way i'm uphill battle so i appreciate you <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on here this was awesome and yeah love the, the work you're doing with balance too um and looking forward to uh, the stuff you're uh creating in the future Thanks, man. I appreciate you. All right. See you later. I'll see you.